Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today we are also joined by Adam Ramsey. Adam is a pastor in Australia. He's an author of Truth on Fire, which JT, Jen, and I loved, and the recently released Faithfully Present. And as of today, he is a repeat guest on the Knowing Faith podcast. Welcome back, Adam. Round two. Guys, did we just become best friends? This feels special. <laughs> this this is amazing. Wait, yeah. I thought we already were. Is there yeah. something I need to yeah, know? Yeah, or? Right. Oh, this is an awkward moment. <laughs> okay. at, at, some point, at some point, Adam, if you come back for a third time, you will then become our Australian correspondent. Uh, the knowing that's huge. Our, uh, our correspondent in Australia, Adam Ramsey, tuning in. But you're actually not, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want anybody to be able to geolocate you. This episode will come out weeks from now. So, but at this point, you'll be like Carmen San Diego. Nobody will know where you're at. Uh, but right now, you are not in Australia. You are actually in my town of Richardson, Texas. Is this right? I am. I am in Richardson, in the great nation of Texas. I have a belly full of brisket. Life mm. is so good right now. Okay, we're, we're, uh, if I could ask you, just because I do eat brisket, where did you? Where have you had barbecue in this Texas jaunt? I went to Lockhart. Oh yeah. Nice. So I don't know if that's a, a well-known thing, but Lockhart, it was good. Yeah. It was good. We've nice. actually had a couple of places. I can't remember the other ones, but uh, pretty much anywhere in Texas doesn't have bad brisket. It's all. It's all good. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's not true, but I like your optimism and you're, you're hitting the good spots. So that's yep. good. Yeah. 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 I've, I've told other people about Texas. It's only barbecue if it's in Texas. Anything yeah. outside of Texas is not technically bar. It could be cooked meat. It could be smoked meat. It could be stewed meat, but it's not barbecue. It's only barbecue if it's Texas brisket. That's my opinion. I'm standing right next to it. Jen, Jen, and, Jen and, and Kyle, what, what kind of uh, barbecue does Colorado have where JT is? Is that, is that exciting like Texas you have or to is go that to, something else? You have to go to Chili's to get barbecue. And we have a Rip Colorado. City Grill in our church's parking lot <laughs> that uh, you can get all the brisket you want for $2.99. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's actually brisket, but is there a dog food factory it. right next door? Oh yeah, boy. That or Kidoba, that's what we got. But we look at the mountains while we eat it. So everything, everything gets better. <laughs> that's true. Well, I mean, if, if, if Colorado had Texas's food and freedom, nobody would oh. live in Texas. You know what I'm saying? Oh, we've got the freedom. Believe me, we've got the freedom. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, uh, Adam, we are excited to have you on. You just released a book. Uh, we had you on uh, shortly after Truth on Fire came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right. uh, you recently released Faithfully Present. Uh, what's it about? Why did you write the book? Just kind of tell us a story about how this book came to be. Yeah, sure. Well, it started off as a desire to explore like a theology of time uh, and then time and place. And just wanted to reflect on that. You know, I started writing it back in 2021 and we were all, you know, just coming fresh out of the pandemic. And many of us had a warped experience of time. Time felt so strange uh, during the first few years of the 2020s. And then for quite a few of us, particularly where I was, uh, we had a really weird experience of place with some of the lockdowns. And so I wasn't able to leave my home state in Australia for two years. Uh, like they wouldn't let me out. And there was so, so time and place, uh, they really haunt us when we start thinking about them uh, because they locate us and, and they ultimately like they limit us. Uh, They remind us we can only really be when we are and where we are. And that's confronting because it reminds us of how not God we actually are. And uh, and so when I started writing this book, looking at these two things, uh, uh, another two things happened almost simultaneously. Uh, One was my wife, Christina, experienced a really horrific vaccine injury uh, to one of the COVID vaccines. Uh, And it's just drastically impacted her uh, her life and limited her life. Uh, In these last two years, uh, you know, no one really knows how to treat her. Everyone's just guessing. There's no there's no cure at this point. And so we're just continuing to pray for a a genuine miracle, uh, even as we trust God and learn to live within these new limitations. Uh, So that was the first thing that happened as I started writing this book about time and place. The second thing was I came across a line in one of Wendell Berry's poems. And it just totally rocked me. And it's become a little bit of a uh, a Ramsey family mantra for the last couple of years. And Wendell Berry wrote the line, we live the given life, not the planned. We live the given life, not the planned. And, and that God wants us to be faithfully present in this season where we are, uh, not where we think we should be. Uh, and to be attentive to the life that we do have, uh, not to the life that we think we should have. And so as I was exploring these ideas of limits and time and place, uh, what I found was is this idea of faithful presence within these limits actually humanizes us, which is where we find freedom and and actually joy, even in hard circumstances uh, and hard seasons of life like the one we've been walking through. So that's kind of where the book came from. Well, Adam, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, and that context, I think, is incredibly helpful because it seems like it didn't come just from a purely like conceptual place for you. It came from a right. real practical place of mm-hmm. spiritual formation and the journey that you and your family and your church and your community there in Australia have been on. And so, uh, hey, I just really appreciate you sharing that. And I'm glad to have you on because we are talking today um, about the law. Uh, specifically, we're kind of giving some focus to how the 
the law created some God-ordained limits for the life of his newly rescued people. Uh, This season, as our listeners know, we're journeying through the book of Exodus. And as we explore the book of Exodus, we're trying to find ripples, so to speak, that extend both before and beyond the book of Exodus itself. And so today, we are on the other side of the Ten Commandments. And uh, I'm going to get us started by reading a portion of Exodus 23. And uh, we're excited to have Adam. You just jump in, man, as we try to think through some of these questions. But I think based off of what you've written in your book, your own story, um, and the passage we're on, I think it's going to be a good discussion for all of us today. So I'll read Exodus 23 verses 10 through 19, just to give us an anchor here. uh, And then we'll jump into this. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed." Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, uh, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field from the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your meals appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. There we go. That's a real cliffhanger there for the audience. I was going to say, wait I, a second. I like where you decided to just cut it off there. Well, you know, I just, you know, I always want to leave a little bit hanging there. And uh, this is what's going on. Uh, but I do want to talk about this. Last episode, we looked at the Ten Commandments. And what we explored was just that the Ten Commandments serve as a, a bit of a cornerstone of the entirety of the law. But they are not the entirety of the law that's received in the Torah. They're, they're kind of uh, the cornerstone or the capstone depending on how you look at it. And we were at pains to point out last time that the Ten Commandments, along with the whole of the law, are given after Israel's rescue from Egypt, not given before. God doesn't shout down the Ten Commandments, nor does he shout down instructions on how to cook a goat when the people of Israel are still enslaved in Egypt. He rescues them because of the grace covenant that he had made with Abraham, and now he brings them to Mount Sinai. He's trying to restore them. He's trying to reform them because they've been under the spiritually malformative worship and practices of slavery in Egypt under its pantheon of false gods for hundreds of years, and Sinai is a place where God is restoring, reforming, reshaping, rehabituating the people of Israel. And the law has a liturgical purpose to it. It is instructing them and how to live their whole life in the very presence of the God who will now dwell in their midst, in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. And so the Ten Commandments are the portion of the law in Exodus that we're most familiar with and that we're the most comfortable with. But for those Bible readers who have read through Exodus, there is a portion right after you get through the Ten Commandments where you start thinking, wait a second, I didn't know about all these other laws. Why are these other laws there? And some of them are a little strange to us. So we wanted to give 
just a few moments today for the listener to be able to think through, okay, what is the purpose of the rest of this law? The law that maybe I've not thought about, the law that wasn't on those tablets of stone, so to speak, in the Charlton Heston movie, uh, the ones that we didn't learn about in Bible school, what is that law about? And so when we think about it, let's start here. Why does God include rest into the law? Like even in this passage we read, we heard about the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, but here you're seeing some rest included. You're seeing some limits included in the law, even in how they sow and harvest from their fields, even in what they're allowed to do, where they're allowed to go. Why does God include rest, festivals, feasting, Sabbath practice into the law itself? Is there anything there that we feel like we can help explore for our listeners? Well, let's look backward before we look at the ripples that go forward. And uh, it's no secret that all of the Sabbath commands find their root in the, the seventh day in the creation narrative, the day in which God rests because his labor is complete in the creative act. But when you look even at the, um, at the fourth commandment, where we see all of these Sabbath laws springing out of that are found in the book of the covenant, you find the explicit mention of uh, his sovereign rule over creation, because it says in verse 11 of Exodus 20, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. And so there's a reference to all of the three creation spheres, the earth, the skies and the seas, and that God made them all. Therefore, he has the right to say what is done in them when. And so the very first place that Sabbath commands have in the understanding of the Israelite is as a preventative, a remedy for idolatry, because what do we find is the course of the rest of the scriptures and even up before Exodus, it's that they're worshiping the earth and the sky and the sea or the creatures therein, which God made. And so when they rest on the seventh day, they have to acknowledge that those things are all in relation to a creator. They are not themselves self-created. So... It begins as a remedy for idolatry, um, first of all, literal idolatry for those who might have actually worshipped the created order, but then the idolatry of self-worship that we would find ourselves to be self-sustaining. And then, you know, we're also going to find that it becomes a remedy for, um, for how to love our neighbor. Because when we get to the book of the covenant, the idea is expanded out to where we see that when I rest, as I'm commanded to do, it actually becomes the means of rest for others. Um, and then we see Jesus even blow it out bigger in the New Testament. But I'm going to stop right there and see if anybody else has any thoughts. Well, Adam, what do you think, man? I mean, why do you think that God includes this encouragement to rest? And he he doesn't just include it as one of the central of the Ten Commandments, but he almost gives greater context to it, greater opportunity to it with some of the festival commands, some of the, like, yeah. hey, you should go you should go remember this. You should go celebrate this. You should take time away from work. You shouldn't plow your field to the, like, the nth degree. You should leave a little bit there. Yeah, Jen, Jen's already nailed one of those those reasons, which is that we, I mean, God is going to be glorified in the lives of his people. Uh, God is committed to the flourishing of his people. We have a tendency to make an idol out of anything and everything, uh, including the created world, but also including our own work. And so you have these these almost expanded passages that that kind of spring out of the Ten Commandments. You know, the fourth commandment of of uh, of resting on the Sabbath and that day belonging to the Lord. And then there's these entire passages around uh, rest and rhythms of life that have to do with God's design for life. So I think one of them is is 
it's, these are helping us keep the first two commandments of, of there is only one God, only worship him, don't have any other God before him. But I think we're commanded to rest. Maybe another reason is because we really are dumber than we realize. Uh, like if you think about that, God has to command his people mm-hmm. to enjoy him and to rest in him and to like Imagine getting a command to nap. Like if <laughs> our governments legislated napping. Hallelujah. It's like, hey, you have to. <laughs> like, like that's the kind of context when I read the commands around rest of like we have to be divinely legislated. God's people were divinely legislated to rest, to honor a time, a period of time in each week, to to sync up with the ebbs and flows of the seasons uh, that 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 come with life in this world. And it, it reminds me of how how much I tend to overestimate myself. Uh, that I have to be commanded. Uh, no, no, rest. Your time belongs to God. And I'm even struck, yeah, and you mentioned before that that this is all coming out of the seventh-day rest that we saw back in Genesis. But it was fascinating to me when I was I was reading through some of these things that the very first thing in all of Scripture that God actually set apart as holy uh, wasn't an object, mm-hmm. wasn't a place, wasn't even a person, but it was a period of time. Now, on, on the seventh day, God finished his work. He rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So I think the commands there to rest is a reminder of our time belong to him, and he has a an ebb and flow for how he will be glorified in our lives as we live within that time. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because the the limits that God places on his people um also have uh they have benefits to the natural order as well. They go beyond just the people of God. And it's almost it's very interesting to me that it's spelled out that way. So the benefit the 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 blessings of rest don't just terminate or the blessing of limits don't just terminate on God's people. They're then to be extended to uh those who are poor the stranger or the, it says in the ESV, the alien, I always have to tell my daughter when reading this, don't, when you read alien in the ESV, it's not talking about a green Martian man. It's talking about somebody who is (laughs) not from, well, you know, know, there we go. Hot take, hot take. Um, Mm -hmm. That would be a very different (laughs) podcast episode if we went in that direction, but (laughs) we'll just hold that for another, another time. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, it it has benefits to the poor. It has benefits to the alien, meaning the stranger, the sojourner, the the immigrant, the person who is not of or from within the people of Israel, somebody who's coming in from outside. And it has blessings to the land itself and the animals. Like, you know, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and donkey may have rest. That's just a very, it's a very interesting thing that it, that it's spelled out, that the benefits of the limits that God puts on his people are not just going to terminate on them. Um, they're not even purely vertical in their dimension, meaning they don't just roll up into a greater self-awareness or a greater God awareness, but they have horizontal impact as well to the created order and to those who may be observing God's people or entering into God's people from the outside. And I think that is a really, uh, I think that's a specific blessing that God extends through the limits that the law places on people. 
I've been thinking a lot about this specifically. We talked about this in the last episode, the threefold use of the law mm-hmm. and specifically it's civil function about how it functions uh, in civic discourse or in, in civic relationships. I think one of the things that God's doing here is we just kind of try to pay attention to the unfolding pattern and the story of redemption as we get to Exodus chapter 23 is God has made a people for himself in the Abrahamic covenant. He has delivered those people from exile and from Egypt and delivered them. We could call that a doctrine of justification or salvation. Like he has delivered them out from under the hands of the enemy. And now he's forming them. He's shaping them. And he's specifically shaping them to be a a nation unlike the other nations. Like they're not supposed to now take the Egyptian way of life and their understanding of Lemus or their understanding of the Allah uh, or the code of Hammurabi and just put it in Israel. God wants a distinct nation for himself that lives in a distinct way among the nations. And this is one of the patterns of the Old Testament as we continue through Numbers and Leviticus and even even, uh, the prophets is the nations, there, there is a go and tell nature of mission in the Old Testament. You think of Jonah, for example, go to Nineveh and and call them and invite them to repentance. That's true. But there's also a come and see element to the gospel here, that the distinctive way that God's people are living in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, the psalmist even declares that the nations are going to flood to Jerusalem to mm-hmm. see God's people living like this in a way that's different than the Egyptians or the Amalekites or the Babylonians or the Persians, mm-hmm. so that they would know God and understand understand him and love him and worship him. And so p- part of what's going on here is God's like, even when we think about Sabbath rest, do you, do you think the Babylonians were resting on the Sabbath? <laughs> of course they weren't. And do you think they were afraid to attack on the Sabbath or to not produce more military and economic might on the Sabbath? Of course they weren't. So I think one of the things that's going on here specifically as it relates to the limits in the law is he's saying these people are different. My people are going to live in a way that is against the grain of all of the surrounding societies so that they can know who I am and come to worship me. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your your copy today. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Now, there are portions in where the law is providing limits, healthy limits, um, healthy limits, not just for God's people, but for the world. Sabbath is one of those. But there are broader limitations that are given to the people. The, not all of them are as 
Oh, easily received as the Sabbath and easily received, I think, in terms of the imagination we have with what Sabbath is versus what they were imagining it to be as well. There are other limits. There are dietary restrictions. There are cleanliness codes. There are laws about what to do with people from outside of Israel coming into life there. There are all sorts of laws that limit and clarify Israel's life of worship. One of the things that we tried to illustrate in the last episode to kind of prime the pump for this is that we can often misunderstand and see these laws as really arbitrary or maybe the whims of a capricious God. But God, after Sinai, is going to take up residence, dwelling. His presence is going to be in the midst of his people. And so one of the principal reasons why the law is so specific, even in areas where maybe we're surprised at its specificity, is because even the very ordinary the political, the economic matters of Israel's life are going to be conducted in full view of the presence of Yahweh, not just his omnipresence in the world, but his special presence among his people. And as the transcendent holy God who now resides in the midst of his people, that means all of Israel's life matters. Um, I, I would say that oftentimes when we look at these laws and we're surprised at how specific they are, that probably says more about us and how we view the holiness of God than it does about Israel and their adherence to the law or to God's dictate of the law. I think that God knows, and I think the people of Israel came to find out very quickly, that if the holy God is going to dwell in your midst, it means everything in your life has to change. Mm -hmm. But I do want to ask this question. How does God's law here in Exodus, in the Torah broadly, serve as a witness to us of what God invites his rescued people into? Like, what is, how is this showing us a picture of what it means to live life with God? And I'm talking about the law codes specifically. I mean, I can jump in. You know, JT touched on one thing before that many of these laws were there to distinguish God's people from the unbelieving nations around them. And that's a very important part of it. And we see ceremonial use of the law and the civic use of the law and all of those, those different pieces there uh, with Jesus obviously fulfilling the law and in, in what he even claimed about himself in the New Testament. But another thing, an, another, I think an important piece of the law there is that the limits of God's law, they actually humanize us. Mm -hmm. And they humanized God's people in a, in a world that had a very low view of life and lived that life apart from God. These laws were there really to humanize the people of God. Uh, and, and, and they get so specific, I, I believe, because God is both distinguishing his people, but also humanizing his people. And so, you know, if you take the, the laws around rest, for example, uh, and some of those limitations there and feasting and, uh, and that kind of thing, those laws are there to remind us that God has designed life to work when he is God and we're not pretending to be. Mm -hmm. uh, the laws that put us in the healthiest way possible in our place where we now flourish under the wisdom of God, not a, a self-worked-up wisdom, which is, again, the way the nations around Israel were living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because Israel is about to go in to be neighbors. God is sending them in to a land that is our, that 
that is already filled with people who are living very different lives than Israel. They have very different ways of treating their servants, very different ways of eating food, very different ways of offering sacrifice to God, very different ways of treating the poor, very different ways of treating the sojourner. And so these these limits here and the, the, the specificity of them is, again, not just to try to uh, mark Israel as uh, their, uh, or to give Israel the ability to live in wisdom in the presence of a holy God, it is to mark them as distinct among the nations as a witness to the distinctiveness of Yahweh. They're supposed to be the people on whom light has shown. They're supposed to be right. a city on a hill. They're supposed to be, it's not simply so that they can self-actualize, you know? And I think that mm-hmm. it's interesting how uh, to our modern ears, we take like, for example, uh, the Sabbath command and, and we make it about self-care. It was absolutely not about that for, for Israel. It was about care for the community, and it was about being marked as different from the world around them. Because in a, as you mentioned early, Kyle, earlier, Kyle, in a, in, in a world where, where labor without rest is what wins you the crown of glory, Yahweh says that you should rest from your labor. And so um, I just think that a lot of times to our modern ears, because we don't perceive that we're dealing with the same kinds of idolatry, although in fact we are, we turn these laws into so much less, or the principles of these laws into so much less than they were for Israel. Again, they were meant to bring health to the community, also to the individual, but to the community, to show the community what it is to be the people of God. So it was to rehumanize the individual and it was to redefine the family family as the family of God uh, in a world that very much needed to see it and was not going to see it anywhere else. And so then when Israel devolves into the legalism of the Pharisees, where they've split split the law into a thousand hairs, uh, you know, they have basically, as, as will be, they'll be accused of, they've, they've shut out the kingdom of heaven. They've shut people out. They've, they've taken something that was meant to be light and life and turned it into a burden instead. So I think we have to recognize the own tendency in ourselves to do that. Mm-hmm. And even to riff on that, Jen, that, that idea there of these laws uh, and the limits of these laws aren't just there at the individual level for us. Mm-hmm. I love the way you clarified that. If the Sabbath isn't purely self-care, it has a, a neighbor love impact. Mm-hmm. We could even think about it like this, that all of these laws and the limits there in the way that they humanize us is they bring us back to a right understanding of the Imago Dei, both in ourselves, right. vertically in relation to God as creator and us made in the image of God, but then also to the way that we now treat one another uh, and others who are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. So you think around, you know, the, uh, the start of this chapter in Exodus 23, uh, in the verses we didn't quite read, but, but that whole passage, verse one through nine, you've got these law codes really centering around justice. And and they're there to ensure that we don't dehumanize one another and oppress one another, robbing each other of the dignity of being made in God's Mm -hmm. image. Uh, The law codes around sexuality, Mm -hmm. they're there so we don't objectify one another and rob each other of the image of God and each other when it comes to sexuality. Uh, The law codes around worship and rest remind us that that God is creator, we are creaturely. Mm -hmm. And again, all of us, I, I, I almost wonder if, if, if there's a single horizontal sin that we can't trace back to a wrong view or, or a distorted view of the Imago Dei, yep. that, that the law helps us recover mm-hmm. by recovering our humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, we need we need transcendence to be others focused. We need That's we exactly need to right. we need to understand who God is and other and, and like if you look at what it means to be to be self focused, it means that you have stopped looking up and you've stopped looking around. Mm. And what the law does is it, it reminds us to look up and to look around. And you know, even you get to the New Testament and you find that Jesus is wanting to drive this point home, and he actually uses the Sabbath command to help him make his point. When uh, there's the man with a withered hand, and he 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 looks around at everyone as the you know as the Jewish leaders are saying, "You're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath," and he says, "Which of one which one of you as a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out?" He actually mm-hmm. references another law in this section of the law codes, and he says, "You guys know, you actually know how the law is supposed to be used, and you're acting like." you don't. And then he says in verse 12 of Matthew 12, he says, or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And then he tells the man to stretch out his hand and he, and he heals him. Um, and so I think when, when we think about the, you know, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, right? In other words, do you understand that the purpose of you obeying my law is not so that you can look at yourselves and make sure that you're, uh, you're ticking off the boxes is so that you can enjoy the benefits of relationship with me but also extend those benefits to others. Like Sabbath rest is secured in this story for this man who needs rest from his suffering on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And so we become instruments of Sabbath. We're not simply recipients of it as well. And Jesus Jesus just dogs all over him using the law the way that it was supposed to be used. That's right. That's that's. It reminds me of Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking with uh, uh the Pharisees is what do you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint mm-hmm. and dill and cumin and have neglected yeah. the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without yeah. neglecting the others. Like yeah. that's such a, so Jesus is saying, Hey, there was a lot in the law. I'm not telling you, you should have neglected what God said in terms of rendering a sacrifice and offering tithe, the, the spices like to, to, to give these over to the Lord. He's not saying, Hey, don't worry about uh, what the law said. He's saying, no, no, no. You were missing the larger, uh, the larger narrative here. You're missing the larger picture. You saw a tree, you missed the forest. He's saying the whole point of it was that you would move towards other people with uh, just justice and mercy and faithfulness. It was supposed to be humanizing, not just you, but humanizing those around you. And so I do think that when we think about the ripples of the law uh, beyond the book of Exodus, and we could certainly think of of many pastorally, and I'm about to uh, ask that question to kind of land the plane here, but it's also important that we don't miss that Jesus's fulfillment of the law is not an absolute kick in the teeth of what the law stood for. It's a, it's not even a reinterpretation per se. It's the right interpretation of what the law was intended to be. Jesus is not coming back in and saying, Hey, you know what? Let me remix the law for you. He's saying, because of how sin has impacted you from the beginning, it's almost like you could not hear the harmony of the law. You only had one note on the law. And I'm now giving you the full picture, the full complement of what it was supposed to be like and sound like in the world. Um, And I think that's really significant because I do think that it's important for us as we look at the witness of the New Testament to realize that what is codified in the law codes are are not all standing in the same way that they were at the time of Israel leaving Sinai. None of us here are going to say, hey, these law codes should still be uh, treated woodenly, literally. They're not supposed 
supposed to be read and used and applied like that. We're supposed to have a Christ-soaked imagination that interprets the law through Christ as the lens. And when we see how Christ is treating the law and we see how the moral law uh, carries over in the moral commands, encouragements, and exhortations of Jesus' ministry and the New Testament witness, we start to get a picture of, you know what? Maybe this law thing isn't supposed to be treated as irrelevant or immoral, but maybe it's supposed to be treated as something that we should really treasure as principles for wise living in God's good kingdom. Now, I want to end by asking this question. Adam, you started by talking about your book with a personal story. So you have been pastoring there in Australia. It wasn't just you that was experiencing kind of maybe the constraints and the limits of that time. I'm sure many people in your church and in your community were coming out of this. And I bet that was a, a part of what was driving you to want to speak to it, both in the book and in your preaching and pastoral ministry. I'd be curious, as you've tried to not just write and think on this, but as you've tried to lead people to kind of metabolize this and digest it for themselves, what have you learned about bringing the wisdom of God, even when we think about looking at Old Testament law, to bear on the temptations for the people in your community, your church, to embrace a kind of limitless living, to just kind of shirk off all sorts of constraints, whether moral or economic, political, social, even in just their bodily limitations. What have you learned about trying to lead people through this? Hmm. Well, I think, I think I've learned and I'm still learning and want to teach our people, you know, at our church back in Australia that in the same way that those, those difficult years during the pandemic and all the rest of that reminded us all of how not in control we actually are, right. uh, how not God we actually are, that there is a, a real freedom in actually embracing that and realizing that's true. I am not God. And both my joy and my longevity and my fruitfulness all are woven into embracing that reality. And so many of the problems in my own life come with me trying to be something which I never can be, never will be, which is God-like in the God of the throne, the transcendence of God, the sovereignty, the, 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 the omnipotence and, and unlimitedness of God. And, and so many of the problems in my life come from me trying to rid myself of what Jesus gladly took on himself which was humanity. Mm. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, which means that the divine, uh, eternal son of God came and was clothed in the limitations of human flesh and was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So I want to help, uh, I want to help our church see that when it comes to laws, okay, let's take rest, for example, and then you guys can talk about uh, goats and mother's milk and, um, and some of those ones. When it comes to the laws around rest and, and looking to invite us into a space where we stop producing and we learn to be worshipfully attentive to God as creator and to the good creation he has us in and to honor him with that principle of Sabbath rest each week, that, that command that the Torah gives us is previewing both the rest that Jesus invites us into in himself, of that Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am your rest is what he's saying. But also we're, we're being invited to see that that 
the rest that his death and resurrection secures for us, which is coming our way. And so in that sense, the Sabbath rest that God calls me to each week is, is like a foretaste of the new creation. It's, this is a little preview of the world to come. I'm experiencing in a weekly reoccurring reminder that honors this period of time as holy and set apart unto God and enjoying him for who he is. I'm getting this little appetizer of the future feast, this little sip of the world to come. And, and, and who of us doesn't need more of that in a world demanding produce, produce, become, strive? Uh, you're only as good as your last performance to actually receive the freedom of restfulness that humanizes us by reminding me I'm not God. And that's the best thing in the world. That's really good. That's really good. Do you have anything to add to that? JT, Jen? I was hoping he'd take us there and he did. There we go. He did. I was hoping you, Kyle was going to talk about like goats and milk and stuff, but if you don't want to, Kyle, it's fine. <laughs> You, should we no. talk about should we talk about the abomination that causes desolation at at uh, that that famous check in place that we won't name by name? <laughs> no, yeah, Jen Jen has a way of invoking this verse, or she used to invoke it regularly when we go to Chick Fil A. You should you should oh, you, you should you name. should share that. Yeah, I don't want a dog oh, on Chick Fil A. I love them. I love we them love so Chick-fil-A. much. The Lord bless and keep them. But uh, we mm-hmm. used to joke. I used to jokingly call the uh, they have a they have a it's a chicken and egg burrito right mm-hmm. or a taco and yeah i've called it the mama baby combo <laughs> <laughs> it's br- it clearly clearly flying in the I'm face like, of the yeah this is not going to work for kosher eaters at all because no. we've got the mom and the baby all wrapped up in a little blankie together for breakfast Gross. No, but I, I, I do feel it anymore now. I know. Well, once she said it to me, I was like, I'm done with that. Um, it's okay. They put potatoes in it, so it's not the same anymore. They added oh, potatoes. Yeah. yeah. Potatoes cleanse it. I do. Um, I do think I sh- I think we should say something about this verse because I read it and it's strange. <laughs> uh, we will we'll not we, we we're not going to do a whole episode on this, but I'll just give you this to the listener. When you read this verse, and there are a lot of these in there, but let me just show you real quickly. And I know this is off the script of what we've been doing, mm-hmm. but after I read it, I was like, I can't just leave the listener with that out there right. and nothing. So okay. When it says you should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, there's a couple of things to think about here. Okay, just so no listeners walk away scarred. The first <laughs> is that the the clear precept of this verse is that we God has not intended to use that which was meant for life to be used for death. This idea of the mother's milk of a baby goat or the, the mother's milk being used to boil a baby goat is to say, isn't it evil and wrong for us to use that which is intended to life to breed, to, to breed or to bring death? It's a, it's a principle. It's, it's very possible that what's happening here, and this is what some scholars have suggested, is that this is an idiom in the ancient world, might even be an idiom or kind of a phrase that's used in the Jewish world at the time as a way of communicating that principle. So it's it's possible that God is being kind uh, to condescend to them, to speak to them using an idiom that they would know, just a phrase that was common knowledge. But the principle
principle here is that God has not intended that which was supposed to be for the purpose of life to be used for the purpose of death, which when you see it in the greater context of these laws here is a great way of thinking about a lot of the laws, whether they're the laws regarding Sabbath or feasting. Hey, I've just told you about a lot of good things. Do you know what another good thing is? Mother's milk. You should not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Don't abuse these things. These good things that are meant for life, don't wield them in a way that is actually going to bring death, specifically to the vulnerable. And in that sense, I think it mirrors very closely. Hey, I'm about to provide you a land. Remember that law that I just gave you about uh, yield uh, crops on your uh, your land, leaving some of that, guess what? The land isn't yours. It's meant for life. Don't use it in a way that actually ends up hurting the vulnerable, kids, the poor, strangers and sojourners. So if you're reading that and you're going, oh my gosh, why is that there? It's very possible. It's a cultural idiom that God is using to speak to his people to reinforce the principle that is clear across the law, which is what God has intended for life should not be wielded for the purposes of death. So hopefully that's helpful for the listener. Kyle, that, that was sense? helpful that's for good, me. Good I have never heard that. And I'm like, I needed that about 10 years ago. So that's really, I've heard a lot of weird stuff about it was a fertility right and stuff like that. Yeah. But what you just said makes a lot more sense. Yeah, well, you know what I thought, Kyle, even as you said that, what a great way of phrasing that, that which is meant for life should never be used for death. Mm -hmm. Because isn't that satanic? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, isn't that exactly mm -hmm. what Satan does? Mm -hmm. Isn't that the problem with everything yep. in the world is Satan distorts that which is good and meant for life and then uses it for something that becomes destructive. And, and then we can invert that. That's what the resurrection of Jesus and the cross in the wisdom of God. That's exactly what right. us back yeah. to is that which was death. Actually, he turned around and used it to bring life Boom. to all who believe in his name. There we go. From mother's milk and goats to the cross of Christ. There we go. Um, hey, listen, uh, I want to encourage you to check out Adam's recently released book, Faithfully Present. If you're exploring just the question of limits in your life and how God's wisdom can help you try to live in a wise and holy way in the face of lies that we can have limitless lives, then I encourage you to check out Faithfully Present. Um, if you want to find out anything about anything we mentioned on the show, resources or products that you heard about in an ad, you can check out the show notes for a link to our sponsor's webpage, or you can go to Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, and products we vet and believe in. You can go over to uh, the website, 10ofthose.com. If you go to 10ofthose.com slash partner slash Knowing Faith, um, you should be able to find Adam's recently released book, Faithfully Present, but you'll also be able to find books we've recommended um, on other seasons of Knowing Faith. So go check that out over there. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.